You are now listening to Strands of Our Nation, Conversations with Dr. K, produced by the Carson Institute, which aims to provide a conversational space to discuss, debate, and explore answers to America's most urgent questions on racial, economic, and social injustice. My first guest is Deirdre Cooper Owens. She is the Linda and Charles Wilson Professor in the History of Medicine and the, the Director of the Humanities and Medicine Program at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Her first book, Medical Bondage, Race, Gender, and the Origins of American Gynecology, won the 2018 Darlene Clark Hine Book Award from the Organization of American Historians as the best book written in African-American women's and gender history. Dr. Owens, thank you so much for joining me. Can you begin by talking with us a bit about the impact of COVID-19 on the Black and the Hispanic community? The impact is devastating uh, and ongoing, unfortunately. Um, much of this, uh, much of the, the disaster that has um, really impacted these communities, and I'll also add in uh, Indigenous communities, particularly the Navajo Nation um, that has really been impacted as well, it's been because of the, the social determinants of, of health, which essentially means medical racism. And how does that figure into our lives? Oftentimes in these big metropolises, you have uh, black and brown people who are frontline workers, who are considered essential. So they have more contact with a public where they can't uh, protect themselves. Early on in the spring, so in March and April, when there were very low numbers of kind of common folk being able to, uh, to get to purchase PPE, jobs are not providing uh, those, those uh, vital equipment for these workers, that also played a part. Um, literally being kind of stuck in an environment that is overcrowded, right? Um, hospitals that are overcrowded and underfunded. All of these things work to essentially place these populations as more vulnerable. And so that's really what has been happening. Um, it's like the old, you know, the old singing about the canary in the mine. Literally in this country, you can sometimes interchange the groups, but black folk, brown folk, indigenous folk have always been the canary in the mine when it comes to almost every devastating and chronic issue. This has been a very difficult period because when you think about the underlying conditions, uh, when you think about the impact of these conditions on the black community, I often say that white America may be in a pandemic, but black folks, Hispanic folks, uh, native folks, we're in a syndemic where we have multiple points of oppression and hostility. Can you talk about how historically uh, black people in particular have had very difficult medical times in this country? I think it was in late spring, early summer, I wrote, wrote an op-ed for the Houston Chronicle, essentially saying, this isn't new for us, right? When it comes to the ways that the black population has either been blamed, ignored, or exploited um, medically. And so I use the example of the 1793 yellow fever epidemic. Um, Richard Allen and his colleagues were called in to gather up the blacks in Philadelphia because there was this yellow fever epidemic literally ravishing the city. And the black population out of a city of about 2,000 was about 400. And literally, it almost wipes out the black population. Why? Because Benjamin Rush, the father of American medicine, believed black people were somehow immune. 
because they were a tropical people. And so black people then took on frontline, quote unquote, essential jobs. They were the ones tending to the sick. They were the ones uh, dealing with the cadavers, digging the graves, all of these things that placed them more at risk. And Richard Allen almost died from this. And so finally, he and Absalom Jones had to say, you know, do the numbers of our people dying. Who do you that we're not immune? And even when black folk went in, they were blamed for stealing and looting the homes of white folk that they were charged to help. And so I often use that example to show the ways that black people have been blamed. So, uh, you know, as we know, our community suffers from pre-existing health conditions uh, at a greater rate than other Americans. So, for instance, diabetes, hypertension, high cholesterol, all of those kinds of things. And literally, you have folks saying, well, if black folks stop being fat, if they stop eating this food, well, the reason they're dying is because they have hypertension, they have diabetes, without looking at the social determinants that also create that. And so, you know, I am always out here trying to tell folks, the ways in which we even process stress in terms of, you know, perceived racist incidents and actual racist incidents creates a kind of low-level inflammation that African-Americans also suffer from. And there have been a number of studies to show that. So it it just is um, sad. It is uh, finally, I think, waking up the public health community and medical practitioners who are now realizing that medical racism must be considered a public health crisis if we want to if we want to eradicate these figures, because we're always going to be unfortunately. So when people say that racism is killing them, then there is actually some truth to that, especially for Black women. Uh, when compared to other groups of American women, you know, I was speaking with a doctor. She's Southern-born, but now is the chief medical officer. Uh, at Hello Clue, which deals with reproductive medicine. She's based in Berlin, Germany. But Dr. Lynn Brayboy was really, you know, telling me about the ways that we process the the racial stresses. You know, if if you are a woman, the kind of gender discrimination, we process this through our bodies. And our bodies are supposed to heal at night when we sleep, right? It's supposed to, we're in recovery. But your body's working sometimes double and triple as hard to recover because of the inflammation that happens, because of the stressors that we experience. And so, you know, as you know, I deal a lot with reproductive, um, the history of reproductive medicine, a lot of reproductive justice, birthing justice issues. And so when you add that into the mix, here we only have black women who are dealing with a, a black maternal health crisis that other women in this country have not experienced. Um, you know, and so it's, you know, the, the answer is we need to literally tell folks, stop raising your children to be anti-Black and anti-woman. Mm. Because that's at the heart of it. That's how the racism continues to be perpetuated on a human level, right? That people are still buying into anti-Blackness and into um, misogyny. Can you connect that for us? to the alarming rates of, well, we find that more black women are dying in childbirth today than if the statistics are true than they did during the latter half of slavery? That just sounds unreal to me. It's uh, interesting. I, Charlotte Fetton, who's a, a noted historian of slavery and race and racism, and also the history of medicine, we co-wrote an article for the American Journal of Public Health. 
And, you know, you're, you're a scholar, so you know, you don't just submit something. It has to be vetted and then people come back, <laughs> you know, with their comments. And so one of the comments was, I don't believe that the stats are the same in the 21st century for black women regarding maternal morbidity, maternal mortality, infant morbidity, infant mortality. You must show me. And so, we, okay, that's fine. Here, we'll, we'll show you the historical receipts. And so linking to, to your question is really about what Black women's reproductive capabilities and health meant in the 19th century. What it meant was Black women were considered chattel property. And so if you were considered an economic asset to the person who owns you, you are going to have every elite member of society. So whether that's a slave-owned person, whether that's a representative of the state or some elite institution, literally working to maintain your uh, capabilities, your reproductive functions, because every child you birth inherits your status as the enslaved mother. Right. It's for anybody else. And so after slavery, that focus that doctors, that slave owners, that the government, whether at the state or federal level, had on maintaining Black women's reproductive health changes. And all of a sudden, the very thing Black women had been prized for, they're now, you know, negated for. Look at these welfare queens. Look at these irresponsible baby mamas. And so I'm thinking, wait, how can you, how can you praise them in the 18th and 19th century for providing you wealth? And when they continue to have children, all of a sudden they're now being called irresponsible and the ways in which that focus, even though it was never a benevolent focus, but the focus now changes uh, for sterilizations in the 50s and 60s, uh, experimenting on black women with dangerous drugs uh, you know, uh, to advance birth control. All of these kinds of things are happening. And so it places our women once again, in a more vulnerable position. Now, how does this connect to some of the stories that we have heard that, that medical students are being taught or have been taught or were taught that black bodies don't experience the same level of pain as, say, our, our white counterparts? Oh, yeah. It's, uh, I did a grand round yesterday for a number of hospitals um, in, the, in the East Coast. And it was interesting. I used a 2014 study uh, that was published in 2016 from the University of Virginia. And I compared it to the knowledge uh, that Samuel Cartwright, he was a very famous doctor during the antebellum era and inventor of the spirometer that measures lung capacity. And I said, let me tell you what Samuel Cartwright wrote about the peculiar uh, diseases of the Negro. Black people have suffer from drapetomania, a mental disorder that caused one to harbor the thought of running away or actually running away. This Pepsia uh, Ethiopia, right, where they had uh, lack of work ethic. They were dirt eaters because these enslaved were supposedly found eating dirt or clay. And this was based on biological difference, which equal biological inferiority. And so even when he creates the spirometer that measures lung capacity, he said, hey, guess what? Black people don't even have developed lungs. Now, in the 21st century, we could say, well, you didn't take into uh, consideration that they're living in slave cabins that don't have ventilation, smoking, they 
more diverse diets, where they're getting all of their nutrition, they're being worked to death, literally. But that's the reigning science of the day, right? That they don't experience pain, all of these things. Compare that to the 2016 study based on this 2014 um, sample uh, conducted by a UVA psychologist. It literally is the same as the 19th century. These residents and students found, and they're white, they found in, in their minds, black people age, uh, what was it? They age faster than white folk. Black people have thicker skin. Black people's blood coagulates. Black people don't experience pain. And so what that was, and in some ways, it's a double-edged sword. Black people were not prescribed a lot of the prescriptions that have helped to, to perpetuate the opiate crisis. So in some ways, it worked in our favor because of these white folks' anti-blackness. But in other ways, you think about the, the, the kind of pain that these patients had to endure because someone literally said they don't experience pain. And in fact, if they demanded, they want the narcotics, not prescriptions, the narcotics to get high. When every study has shown that African-Americans use drugs and use alcohol at uh, lower rates than white Americans, right? And so often I talk to professionals and I'm like, what's the difference between an 1851 article in terms of the scientific around race and racial formation and this 2016 survey that comes out of one of the most elite medical institutions in the country? Not much. So then when you just kind of think about this, this is astonishing to me um, in terms of how we're still dealing with the same level of anti-blackness, the same level of racism, uh, the same level of discrimination. I think about the study uh, that came out about um, that black women who speak up about their pain, even when they speak up, if, they're, if they have a PhD, if they have an MA, they're still, they're, the assumption is that you don't know your body better than I do. Kind of like Serena Williams. I know that you're an elite athlete, but you don't, you're not in touch with your body in the same way that I am. I mean, you know, often uh, women doctors have shared this with me in the many talks that I have. You know, what is interesting, many doctors, thankfully, this kind of incorrect biological information isn't being taught anymore. But they have told me um, many times, oh, yeah, when I was in med school, I was taught women generally don't have as many nerve endings in the upper vaginal area. So, eh, you know, you don't need to give them anesthesia if you're performing surgery there. Uh, in the in the afterward of my book, I was very transparent. I didn't know, you know, that I was writing the book, you know, in the, in the beginning that I would be undergoing um, fertility treatments. And so I was found to have the, what doctors call a cervical stenosis. So it essentially means that my cervix didn't have an opening. And so the doctors don't, didn't know whether it was closed, um, whether I was born that way, but I didn't have an opening. So they had to dilate my cervix. Most dilations happen naturally for women or birthing people when they're about to give birth. Right. So here I am, someone who is not pregnant and I'm trying to figure out how is this going to feel? So I'm calling every mother I know. Hey, what happens when you cervix dilates? And they're like, oh, the baby's about, you know, about to come when it's this much. And I'm like, I'm not pregnant. So that doesn't relate to me. So there was nothing I could kind of YouTube to find out what what it was. So I remember he said, 
the day before, just remember to take two Motrin, which I did. So I figured, oh, it, you know, it, it's not gonna, it's not gonna hurt. Here, this man knew, and this is in the Upper East Side when I was still living in Manhattan. Literally, this guy knew I was a PhD. I was married. All of these things that mark you supposedly as respectable, as middle class, mm -hmm. as maybe his peer. Not like you said. None of that protects me. None of it protects me when you are a black woman, and there are assumptions already made about who you are. So I go in, and uh, just like a pap smear, they use the speculum, and they, the guy literally. I, he grabs my cervix. I can feel it in his hand. And then he takes a washer. And so it's essentially a metal, it looks like a metal stick with a metal brush at the top and bores a hole into my face. That's how you dilate a cervix. No anesthesia, nothing. All I was told was to take a Motrin an hour before this procedure. And then I remember I screamed it hurt much I couldn't cry I just screamed I'd never been in that kind of pain and there was a white nurse and the way she looked at me she didn't say oh it'll be okay there was no comfort she just looked at me in this way like oh my god would you stop being histrionic and this went on for about 15 minutes or so he then he he and the nurse and he says okay you'll need to walk across the street essentially was another medical facility where I could get the HSG, which is a diagnostic test, where uh, doctors insert a dye into that area to see if there's anything wrong. So I remember they just left me there. And so I, you know, my legs are up in the stirrups because they're supposed to be elevated for 15 minutes. And so I kind of reach over to the chair to check my phone. So 15 minutes happens and I literally am there with this gown on and nobody's there to help me. Now, this is on the upper east side. Wow. And I remember just kind of looking for things to clean myself, walk across the street. Thank goodness for this black nurse who could literally see the, the, the confusion, the frustration, the pain on my face. And she treated me like a human being. And based on that experience, I remember her asking me what I did. I told her, you know, I said, you'll find it ironic. I'm writing a history of race. <laughs> <laughs> The history of American gynecology and some kind of talk. And she she says to me after like really affirming me, I'll never forget, she says, are you going to put this in the book? And I said, no, I'm a historian. We're supposed to be objective. I, I can't include anything autobiographical. And she said, girl, you better put this in the book. <laughs> so it, it, I think, you know, I offer that kind of experience to say nothing protects black women. Um, nothing really protects black people, but in terms of the gynecological experiences, we are not protected. Now, it's interesting when I when I speak to people in our community about COVID-19 and about the vaccine, um, depending upon the age, if I talk to my father and his friends, they'll go, absolutely not. I cannot take a vaccine because of Tuskegee. That they always point to Tuskegee. And then I, when I talk to my sons and people there, they're like, no, 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 because of Tuskegee. I'm like, what do you know about Tuskegee? Because that is a, an ongoing story that's being told from generation to generation. So could you, could you just help us out here? What exactly was a Tuskegee experiment and why are people like my father, who's in his 70s, deathly afraid of seeing that done again? It, Tuskegee was literally before Henrietta Lacks, before we knew about Anarcha Betsy and Lucy, 
Black folk knew about Tuskegee. We might not have remembered the name, the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, but we knew that the government did something to our men, mm -hmm. where these men had syphilis and the government literally allowed them to suffer without treatment, giving them a placebo, which is, which is like a sugar tablet. I mean, it, they didn't give them anything. So the Tuskegee experiment happened in 1932. It ends in 1972. And when I teach this to my students, I tell them I was born in 1972. So I'm not anybody's senior citizen or anything. I'm just firmly middle age. And it ended in 1972. Men whose lives have been ruined, their bodies wracked with pain and disfigurement, um, cancers, disorders, and the, the federal government sanctioned it. And even when the very few white doctors who had also been maligned, so a lot of the Jewish white doctors who learned about this, they were like, wait a minute, what are you doing? Because they're also coming out of an experience with World War II and the experiments on their ancestors. And they're like, wait, 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 what are you doing? They write to the government. They write to the AMA. You cannot do this. This is unethical. These men are being help. And in fact, the government ignores them or either goes after them. So even when you had a very small number of folks trying to advocate folks behalf, it's ignored. And I often say, you know, when people say, well, black doctors are the, the answer, you know, the answer are black institutions. I'm like, it happened at Tuskegee Institute. It happened at a black created, ran and managed institute. Right. And so it's complicated because what it did was further cement, cement that, in fact, we're smart. It's about self-care and protection to not trust um, what the government says about its interest in maintaining our health. There's a study that came out in the early 2000s out of the University of Chicago and it was around the experimentation of this uh, so-called hypertension drug that was for black people. And a lot of seniors in the south side of Chicago didn't want to take it. Even for the ones who didn't know the name Tuskegee, they had a cultural memory. And they said, uh-uh, it was something that happened down south, and, and they used those folks. Uh-uh, you ain't going to use that on me. And so doctors typically would blame, oh, they're superstitious. They don't care about their health not recognizing the centuries-long practice of using our bodies in exploitative ways um, in the name of progress, right? And so that's what Tuskegee really represents. And by the time the government apologizes decades later, most of the men are dead, if not all of them. And so I and if we link it to COVID-19, and the early stages of the, the novel coronavirus kind of hitting the states in the ways that there was the huge um, surge of cases. Remember, the CDC at first said, nope, don't wear masks because it's, it's only for people who are sick. And I remember me having conversations with other folk in kind of medical humanities and with public health folks. And they were saying, wait, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense for only sick people to wear the mask. For mission of droplets. You know, something about this that doesn't make sense. And then all of a sudden, that is pivoted to say, wait, everyone should wear masks. But then remember, there's this crisis. And now we have to wait 
you know, the black the black community is always depended on upon itself. We now have to place orders over the internet or with our friends, you know, to make masks for us or, you know, using all kinds of information we found on the internet to try to protect ourselves because what the government told us in the beginning was contradictory. And so understand um, the distrust. And so it really is up to the medical profession because I think public health folk have had it right all along. They've been much more cautionary in the information that they presented to us. It's really been the medical field that has given us this contradictory information and they have to be the ones to change. Black people are not at fault for being distrustful. Can you connect that for us um, to Henrietta Lacks? Now, that has become a more popularized study and case because of the Oprah movie, because of the book. We're based in Baltimore, so people know about the Henrietta, but I don't think they actually understand the power of the HeLa cells, as well as the billions of dollars being made off of her cells that will have continued to this day. Another, you know, we call it another biomedical ethical issue um, where by this point, you know, you literally have a, a code of ethics that the AMA has set forth that should be adhered to. And the doctors, the two main uh, doctors who are quote unquote treating uh, Mrs. Lacks, don't really inform her fully about her disease, about what the cancer is going to do, because they're afraid that she will no longer come, essentially for them to, to harvest herself, um, to experiment on, on her cellular matter. Uh, they do not gain, uh, gain her consent. And so after she dies, her family has no knowledge that in fact Johns Hopkins, quote unquote, owns herself. And so it really is reminiscent of everything that we talked about before. You know, do black people, whether in bondage or, or freedom, own their bodies? Do we own what our bodies produce? Um, and I think that's an important, important question to ask, particularly for the members of our communities who are in more fragile positions. Henrietta Lacks was functionally illiterate. It was a child bride who was married to an older cousin uh, you know, who essentially um, sometimes beat her, cheated on her, gave her sexually transmitted infections. Um, she had a child who was developmentally disabled and she was poor, right? And so she had all of these determinants that made her a lot more vulnerable and fragile to the onset of, of disease. And the very powerful institution that was meant to protect her essentially acts in the capacity of someone 18th or the 19th century. She just becomes a marked black body, right? Um, who is who is at their at their you know discretionary use. And so what becomes even sadder with Rebecca Scoots's book and the kind of investigative journalism that she did, we then find out that her family wasn't protected. Right? Johns Hopkins maintains their stature. Um, you know, and her family, many members still struggle. You know, the fact that Rebecca Sloops, who's not a medical practitioner, who is an investigative journalist, uh, had to say, wait, the proceeds, some of the proceeds from the book should go to the family. Some of the proceeds from this book should go to a creation of funds where they have access to medical care, the children can go to college. She should not have been the one charged to do that. Johns Hopkins should have been, been the institution to, to take that lead. 
Um, and so it, I think, once again, it shows us another example of why Black people are distrustful of medical institutions. Now, we, we live in a time where the physicians in this country, black folks only make up 5% of the physicians in this country, black women about 2%. So when we talk about getting through the distrust, getting to a point where we can trust our doctors, our medical professionals, well, there are not enough of us in the field to, to be the black nurse who stepped in to help you. So, so given where we are now, short of pushing all of our children to medical school, which I'm a huge supporter of, what do we do? How do we get past the stigma, the distrust that's rooted in actual stories? The doctor I mentioned before, Lynn Brayboy of Hello Who, she mentioned something that I think is really important. I, I'm kind of a one-woman band with the center that I'm running. <laughs> um, you know, I, I need more band members, but the center I'm running, it would be wonderful if we had the hard money to be able to create a database for Black folks to have access to patient doulas. And so I'm, I'm using kind of doula terminology from reproductive medicine and, and reproductive birth workers to say, I don't care what you have or, or what might be the potential for what you have. Black folk need folk who are not affiliated with a hospital to advocate for them. Right. And we know from Zoom, from Skype, from all of these platforms, we can even bring people in FaceTime, right? We can do a tele, you know, kind of um, do telemedicine, but we need someone to advocate for us in ways that very wealthy patients already have access to, that certain uh, insurance companies already provide. And the reason I say non-hospital affiliated doulas, because patient doulas affiliated hospitals are still hospital employees. Right. So it's wonderful if we were able to have these kinds of advocates working on our behalf that we had access to. I would love to do that kind of database. And I remember putting out a call and people were like, I'm down. And I'm like, and that's great, but I need the money. <laughs> you know. The <laughs> I think the other thing is in, in terms of reproductive medicine, um, or I should say reproductive justice in medicine, if we follow the example of what reproductive justice activists and birthing justice activists have been doing for decades, it literally can help us get free because these women have coined terms to uh, speak to the very um, unique experiences of black women and black birthing people, you know, creating the term reproductive justice and birthing mm -hmm. um, in the 90s. What they have done is create synergistic relationships with all medical practitioners. So whether you're an OBGYN, a uh, nurse midwife, a midwife, or a doula. What these uh, activists have been able to do is to say, okay, at every step of the way, how are we centering the patient so that the quality of care, quality of life, and the afterlife of birth are, are, are privileged, right? And that we don't continue to have these kinds of stats. And so what the statistics show us, show us with, uh, within reproductive medicine is black women and birthing people who have had access to either doulas, midwives, or have given birth in a birthing center or at home without the aid of a C-section, have literally had better outcomes. They don't suffer from the, the kind of distressing facts, um, you know, of the, the national average being black women are three to four times more likely to die mm. in childbirth or suffer complications related to pregnancy. 
um, in certain urban areas. I used to live in Brooklyn until last year. That number is eight times higher than white white women. And so in Baltimore, it's also higher than three to four times the, the average. So when you have instituted doulas and midwives given home births or births in birthing centers, it's helped us because we're also relying on something that has is culturally based um, in terms of the medical care, in terms of the compassion that is is you know being extended to these women, and I think that can be translated into every area of medical care for all Black people. We really need advocates um, to to assist us because. Unfortunately, the medical establishment hasn't listened. Um, they're finally, finally, so this is a transformative moment, finally paying attention because globally, the U.S. continues to be the most dangerous country for Black women to give birth in the quote-unquote developed world. Looking at the impact of COVID-19 today, as someone who has studied medical history, looked at racism within the medical field, uh, given where we are, where we're now in possibly the second wave or in the horrible part of the first wave, um, we're dealing with a lot of misinformation that's still coming out and watching it disproportionately impact our communities. Are you surprised that we're at this moment now? Like, did you see this coming when all of the misinformation started being put out? Yeah. We literally have a president who appoints people based on their economic status, um, whether they are the black face that extols his uh, political ideology. So he has a neurosurgeon, not over some medical division, but over housing. A neurosurgeon over housing, right? <laughs> so we literally have someone who put the vice president, the vice president who bears the blame for the high numbers of deaths um, in Indiana when he was governor of, of men and women dying from an opiate uh, overdose, right? The kind of crisis that hit these Midwestern states in the Rust Belt. He put this man over the coronavirus task force who has shown that he was cavalier when it came to the lives of folk in his own state who were dealing with substance abuse issues and so, yes, I'm, you know, sad to say I am not surprised. Um, he refuses to listen to the person who has been doing this kind of work with Anthony Fauci for decades, since the 1980s in the, the level that he's, he's held. He refuses mm -hmm. to, he mocks scientists. He mocks science. Mm -hmm. This is going to continue to happen um, unless we take very seriously the public health measures that have been told to us by public health officials since the beginning. Um, you have people, and once again, the kind of political outcry um, from the far right is not new. You know, I often tell my students, I like for you to look at, you know, the political responses to the 1918 uh, influenza epidemic in America. And you literally have those who are more uh, to the right saying, you know, they're closing down our society because we can't have football games and they're closing our businesses and we're losing money and we shouldn't wear masks. And in fact, we're going to create anti-masking associations. All of this happened a century ago. Hmm. Sound like, are we learning from these examples? Hmm. Um, 
Um, or are we continuing to repeat it because people are wed to a, a, a certain political ideology? And it seems like we're, we're more wed to political ideologies than actually doing the right and correct thing. So if you, if you think about what you just said, are we learning? To just talk for another minute about the black community, uh, the Hispanic and the native communities, which are being hit the hardest, so I'm very concerned. I know early on there was uh, a Facebook post or a Twitter uh, tweet that went out saying, oh, black people are immune to COVID-19, like very early on. And it was a joke, right? They're like, oh, you know, we survived slavery, so this is kind of God's gift to us that we won't get COVID-19. And I remember reading the tweet or Facebook post thinking, oh, this is not good because it's gonna find its way into people's lives and it's gonna be this belief of, oh, we are immune to it until we find out the hard way that we're not. What do you think are some of the lessons that the black and the Hispanic and the Native American community can learn from this COVID-19 medical moment? Much as black people understand the investment in wanting to see our biological makeup as different, it actually does us a disservice when think that our bodies are biologically different or superior. Mm. This is the thing. If that were the case, we wouldn't be able to, to have blood transfusions or heart transplants, people who quote unquote look differently. There is no biological distinction with human beings at the cellular level, right? So our DNA makeup um, means that we're just homo sapiens sapiens, right? That we're a particular kind of, of homo sapiens. And so we're considered the quote-unquote most advanced um, biological human being. That's all it means. And so I understood you know, the, the kind of joke. And then I remember around the same time, Idris Elba, who was born to two African parents, gets it. And he's like, don't believe that hype, because I got <laughs> I'm as African as they come. Both my parents are born on the continent. You know, and then we start to see in the U.S., all of a sudden, the very thing that public health folk and, and folk who really understand the history of racism in this country, what we have been saying, the black community is going to be hit hard. Poor people are going to be hit hard. You know, uh, we see it with the indigenous folk. We see it with the, the um, Latinx or Hispanic community. They're going to be hit hard. And what happens? We were hit hardest. We were hit disproportionately harder than other groups of Americans. You know, and it didn't matter whether you're in a rural section of the country or an urban section. So I think the lesson to, to learn is, um, you know, be smart. Mm. Get the most accurate information, not from me, but in today's age, you literally have links that can pop up on social media. Every time a social media platform, something pops up either about the election or coronavirus. Right. And so they're coming from the World Health Organization, the CDC. Johns Hopkins, you know, in Baltimore has been one of the leading institutions literally collecting data and translating that into accessible language in an almost daily, um, you know, a daily form of information. So the information is out here. And as much as we want to give um, privilege to means, means are entertain us, not necessarily to educate us. Um, and so if, if we can just remember anything, access the information that has gone through a process, right? Um, and use common sense, wash your hands. If people are telling you wear a mask, um, wear the mask properly. 
you know, all of those kinds of things, right? Um, don't go into enclosed spaces if you can help it. You know, once again, we have to use common sense. Now, it's interesting that we talk about, you know, what we want people to learn, but I saw a question that had been posed to you that really inspired me, because what do we want them to unlearn? I was thinking about, you know, during this time of the shutdown with COVID-19, with the unfortunate death of Chadwick Boseman, for a lot of black people that I know, that was a wake-up call for a colonoscopy. And I'm like, oh, I keep putting it off, myself included. I kept going, oh, you know, I'll get to it, I'll get to it. That was a wake-up moment when, of course, T'Challa <laughs> died from colon cancer. So what do you think are some things that we can unlearn in this moment? What would you suggest we do? I understand this, the, the, the kind of belief in black people are stronger because of all the things that we've withstood. But that belief in the kind of unique strength of the black body is killing us. We also have to accept when we are fragile and when we are vulnerable physically. We have to understand the one thing that has been constant since the creation of what has become the United States is anti-blackness. And it ebbs and flows that the anti-blackness is there. And so if we know that the physiological response to anti-blackness works itself through our bodies, you know, cellularly, um, where we are suffering from the low-level inflammation, which makes us more um, vulnerable to a lot of the preventable diseases that, that our community suffers from, heart disease, hypertension, diabetes, those kinds of things, we must continue to get our checkups, we must advocate for our health. Um, we must continue to see ourselves as not just being strong, but that there is no weakness in also saying that we are we are fragile, we're vulnerable as human beings and beings, right? That we can be both and, and it's not a negation of our humanity, but that if we truly love each other, our health must also be our love. Can you connect, um, and I know in the last few moments we have together, but, but can you connect the, the struggle for social justice to the struggle to deal with anti-racism and why that's important to the struggle with our medical health and our condition and how we are not just physically doing, but mentally, emotionally, spiritually, psychologically? Um, you know, those, those are wonderful questions and they're all entangled, I think, um, in the best way. I always say, you know, often when we think about um, politics, when we think about social justice, it tends to be linked to wanting to change a law or a practice. And for me, I'm always saying, if we don't connect the kind of maintenance of our health, um, if we don't protect our bodies, we will not be able to fight. We will not be able to effectuate change because we will literally break our bodies down, you know, or end our lives in an early death. So health has to be, I think, um, you know, the kind of supreme way that we honor uh, social justice, that we honor, um, you know, the kind of positive, transformative change that our community needs. So it needs to be on every platform, right? We need to talk about advocacy for ourselves in terms of um, medical protection and care. Um, we need to talk about the ways that the insurance companies are exploitative um, and that people should not be afforded care because they have a job, right? those, those kinds of things. I'm a, a real advocate for universal health care. Um, the other thing that I think is really important as well 
is, um, you know, having a practice of self-care and self-love, no matter whether it's, it's a social justice platform, um, whether it's about medical care, um, whether it is about um, the kind of work we do to ensure a more equitable society, we have to do it also from a praxis or practice of love as the guiding principle, right? If we love ourselves, then that means we must love others. And so what does love look like when it's translated into policy, when it's translated into legislation, when it's translated into new medical practices? Um, and so that is something I think is important. And that also aids us. When people operate from love and joy, you are literally working to um, you know, put your body in a safer, a more healthy place, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically. And so that's a guiding principle, I think, that is, is important to, to, um, to integrate into practice. And it doesn't cost money. Right. It just literally <laughs> creates a new way of, of thinking and being um, that comes from a place of gentleness. Um, and I don't think that's a bad thing for us. Now, you grew up between South Carolina and Washington, D.C., as did I. There's something special about, you know, those of us from the up south and the down south. And I know that you grew up with your grandfather telling you, I think, Gullah Geechee stories. What do you think we can learn from um, from the grandfathers in our lives about that time period? This is wonderful because, um, once again, this is interesting. Black people are, um, overall, we live in multi-generational units um, more than most Americans. So when my parents divorced and uh, my father still remained in the Washington, D.C. area, my mother moved back home to South Carolina, to the low country, with her, with her parents. So I literally grew up in a house with my grandfather being born in 1911. And my brother was the youngest, being born in 1983. Wow. And so having, I think, those experiences with my grandfather, who was absolutely, to this day, may he rest in peace, my absolute favorite human being, um, it was inexplicable because he was someone who, uh, in the Gullah Geechee community, we talk about people being born with a veil or a call over their eyes. So he would always tell me he was born with a veil over his eyes. And I never noticed that. <laughs> Like a veil, like a wedding, a wedding veil. And he was like, "Oh, you know, trying to explain these things, or telling me these ghost stories, um, telling me even about Bro Rabbit before I knew about Bro Rabbit, you know, or um, in a Gullah way that they would say Santa Claus. In fact, instead of saying Santa Claus, he would say Bersani Claw. And let me tell you about Bersani Claw, you know, and all that. <laughs> and so when I grew up and went to a PhD program, you know, well after his death, he died in 1992 when I was 20. Um, I remember some of those stories that he would tell me and his experiences when I would go through the records. I'm like, oh, my God, wait, the church where he said, you know, where he was a young man and he was cleaning the church. Um, it was kind of the little pickup work that he would do at the first Presbyterian church in, in King Street. He would tell me that he hated going down to like the, the basement level because he would see and hear slaves. And I remember asking him, well, how do they look? And what did you hear? And, you know, I said, well, maybe he's just trying to scare us. And then I remember looking at, in the records, that church and the kind of um, architectural design. And there were, in the basement, there were slave holding pens. That's where many of the enslaved people, King Street or Winsburg County, were being held before they were sold. And so I'm thinking, oh my God, my grandfather, 
you know, may not have understood the word griot, but he was literally someone who was griot. He was telling us his history, but couched in a way that I would be able to understand as a child. And so that, along with my mother's own interest in Black history, really put me on this path. I wouldn't have known I'd be a historian um, when I was 20. I thought I was going to be the next Oprah. I was a broadcast. <laughs> You're right. And I thank him for playing for me. Well, then my last question for you, uh, Deja Cooper Owens is the Linder and Charles Wilson Professor in the History of Medicine and the Director of the Humanities in Medicine Program at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. If you could just kind of think out loud with us for a minute, going 50 years into the future, and you have you know, future historians who look at your work, what would you want them to learn about the work that you did? That I've always centered Black Black women's experiences. I'm a historian of, of women's history, Black women's history, and slavery. I've always tried to write about the experiences of, of these ancestors, these quote unquote historical actors first. So when I wrote Medical Bondage, I didn't do it from the positionality of let me write about the hospitals and the, and the doctors. How do we understand history if we look at it from the perspective of the patients who were enslaved? Um, the second project I'm working on, which is a biography of Harriet Tubman as a disabled person, how do we understand the world that she occupied in slavery and freedom in the, the South and in the North and even outside of the United States from the perspective of a disabled woman um, who was free longer than she was enslaved? Um, how do we understand that world from her perspective? How do we understand ability and disability from a black woman's perspective? And so what I want them to come away with is there was nothing wrong with centering the experiences of black people, of telling our stories in a way that is accessible, um, in a way that is nuanced, that presents them as flesh and blood human beings, not just black characters on the page. And I would hope in 50 years the, the notion of me being one of two endowed uh, professors in the history of, of medicine who are black women is history. Like literally, I want that put in the archives and show <laughs> in 50 years, there will be so many black women, men, black people running the kinds of institutes that you're, you're running, um, the kinds of programs and institutes that I'm running that we count. Um, and I also hope that these institutions are built independent of colleges and universities and that Black people um, really own um, these institutions so that we can not necessarily be tethered to the institutions that provide us with a paycheck, um, you know, but that we have uh, the kind of scope and the freedom to be able to bring all the stories to the forefront. Dr. Deidre Cooper Owens, thank you so much for your time. You have been listening to Strands of Our Nation, Conversations with Dr. K. Thank you for listening, and until next time, remember, words are a powerful medium that effectively examine critical moments in American history. So use yours wisely.